scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. The many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. Thanks, Cindy. I woke up to a news feed today, which um, uh, some of you may have seen. Uh, in southern Colombia, there was a, a devastating mudslide that has taken at least 254 lives, and I imagine that toll is rising. Uh, we'll be right if we start in prayer, praying for them, and then praying as we get into the word. Uh, Father, uh, we just ask for, for your supernatural comfort and peace for the families, for the community, for that country um, uh, working through this, just this devastating thing. Um, please bring your healing, your provision. Please, please bring your gospel there. Um, and Father, as you, you know, we sit here in the Silicon Valley, 21st century. I mean, we just, you know, we are, for the most part, quote, protected from these sorts of things. I mean, you know, we have earthquakes and stuff like that that loom over us but really we're, we're protected here things are things are good and and really the passage today that we're looking at is a reminder that we all the more need to be uh, cognizant of, of our need for you uh, your your care for us your love for us um, and so would you would you center our hearts on you and uh, help us to each be uh, uh, touched by by your spirit we ask in Jesus name amen well good morning I'm David the pastor here at current uh, you know, as we've been working our way through the book of Mark, I think that this story, more than any other story, uh, brings to a head the spiritual climate of the Silicon Valley. This is the story of the rich young ruler, which is its classic, uh, this guy's classic uh, title. Uh, it's recorded three times, uh, three different places in the Bible. Mark's account, of course, we're looking at here. But also, Matthew's account tells us that this guy was young. Luke's account tells us that he was of the ruling class. So that's how why we get the rich young ruler thing. And here we are sitting in a nation that we just, we have so much opportunities at our fingertips. Educational, jobs, there's such a concentration of wealth here. And here we are in the center of it in many respects. What's more about this guy is he's probably the first guy in the book of Mark who's come to Jesus, and he's not all that desperate. 
Have you noticed that along the way as we've been studying the book of Mark? People have been bringing, hey, I have this physical ailment. My son, my daughter's in trouble. Heal them. Heal me. This guy, he's doing okay for the most part. At least it seems on the, on the surface. Uh, I think most in this room, we're, we're probably doing okay for the most part. I think a lot of people sitting around us in the workplace, in our neighborhoods, they're doing okay. I, I think that's why this passage can be all the more helpful today. Uh, I, I, like I want to call this Jesus and the man who had it all. Uh, there's a lot for us to learn uh, that's both uh, challenging but also encouraging. And so what I want to do as we look at this text is, is look at it with these two uh, headings to kind of hang our thoughts on. Uh, the first one is, what do we learn about ourselves uh, from, from this guy and Jesus' interaction with him? And then what do we learn about God from uh, his interaction with Jesus? So what do, what do we learn about ourselves from here, and what do we learn about God? So first, what do we learn about ourselves? Uh, verse 17 kicks off by saying, as Jesus started on his way. Now, real quickly, whenever Mark uses this phrase, I've, I've skipped over it for the sake of time in the past. This is a, a, a verse that has a lot more meaning in it than, it than just a descriptive Jesus, you know, on some road. It, Mark uses it to say Jesus was on his way to the cross. He's been predicting that he's going to die and be raised again, and that's going to happen. Easter's coming. Good Friday, and Easter's coming. Um, and so Mark is reminding us of that. The stakes are high, and it's at this time that this man uh, ran up to him, verse 17 goes on, fell on his knees before Jesus. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which, that's the question, isn't it? What a, what a great question. And he is the first person, at least in the book of Mark, who has actually asked this defining of a question to Jesus. His disciples haven't asked him this question. Other people he's been coming in contact with haven't asked him this question. But it's the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, he's scared of death. I wonder if you've noticed, as, as I have, that uh, the super rich tend to be more preoccupied and concerned with death than, than the rest of us. Have you noticed that? Uh, Peter Thiel, a co-founder of, of PayPal, he said this in an article. I was actually reading this week. I've always had this really strong sense that death was a terrible, terrible thing. Most people end up compartmentalizing it, and they are in some weird mode of denial and acceptance about death, but they both have the result of making you very passive. And it's not just Thiel, but all of our, uh, what we call tech titans, you know, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the, the Elon Musks, uh, the guys at Google, all these guys are, spent, are pouring billions of dollars. Last year is, is almost two billion. That number is going up exponentially over the next few years, pouring billions of dollars, not to just find ways to delay death, but to try to defeat it altogether. Uh, trying to find, quote, a cure to end all diseases, even finding uh, anti-aging uh, agents. Um, now, I imagine, as you hear that, we, a lot of us have different responses. That Some of us, hey, that's kind of cool. Other of us are like, ah, it's chasing vanity. Uh, Bill Gates went on record. I mean, uh, talk about the godfather of all these tech titans, right? He went on the, on the record saying these pursuits are really egocentric. But whatever you think of these pursuits, whatever you think, uh, it's, it's, I wonder if part of the reason why these, the, the super rich are so preoccupied with death is not for the reason of it's the eternal life is the one thing they can't buy or control with their money. Um, this rich young ruler, uh, there's something earnest about him. He's not in a physical crisis. He's in an existential one. He runs to Jesus. We don't see a lot of people running to Jesus. He kneels before him. There's got to be something more, Jesus. What's your take? 
and he asks them this, this great question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what Jesus says. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And with that little verse, I think Mark, the writer here, is tipping us off to something that Jesus knows, that the the reader of this book of Mark knows, if we've gotten this far, that this man does not know. Uh, That is, that this guy's question embedded within it is a false premise. He is saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you're the underlining, the circling type in your Bible, that I do is what, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? The guy is missing something, Mark is saying. In fact, this is what Jesus has been saying all along from day one when he's come to declare the gospel or the good news that is of Jesus. Um, From day one, what Jesus has been saying is, you know the commandments and you can't do them. That's what he's been saying to this Jewish culture that knows the commandments, you can't do them. Uh, For instance, in his most famous sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as it's classically known, uh, he said, okay, you guys know the commandments, but you've heard it said that uh, do not murder. That's one of the commandments. He said, but I tell you, if you even get angry with somebody, if you even use harsh language towards somebody, you are, in a sense, murdering them. You are breaking that commandment. Or he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Again, another one that Jesus says to this guy. He says, but I tell you the truth, again, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you look lustfully at somebody, that you are breaking that commandment. You are, in a sense, committing adultery. He actually sums up that whole Sermon on the Mount by saying, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. His point in that great sermon is God cares very much about the commandments. Why? Because he doesn't want us doing things that hurt or dishonor him, let alone going all the way to the act of actually committing murder. He doesn't want us to hurt others. He doesn't want us to dishonor him, our creator, who knows best for us, even when we don't quite see it. His point is you, God takes, care, takes very seriously the commandments, but on the other hand, you cannot do them. I mean, anybody listening to that sermon, anybody spending time with Jesus knows that. Uh, that's what he's saying here. Um, and you hear that, by the way, in some of what Jesus is saying to this man in his response. He says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. But this guy thinks getting into heaven, it's all about being a good person, living right, having your act together. Um, but he's missing it entirely. And you know what? He's an incredibly good company. Uh, you know, some of you have heard me share this story earlier on. Uh, I have a friend, a uh, good friend of mine, that we, we had gotten into conversations about Christianity. He was just asking me a lot of questions. A real deep thinker. I always loved our conversations. And he would, uh, he's, he's moved away. Um, that's why the cat's coming. Um, he would always ask these really good questions. And I always remember thinking, man, this guy knows his Bible better than a lot of Christians know their Bible. Uh, but at one point, I asked him the question. I said, I said, Chris, like, you know, how would you... How would you, what would you say Christianity is all about? Like, how would, how would you define it in a sentence or two? What, what would Jesus boil it down to? What is it? And he thought about it for a second. He said, uh, being a good person, going to church, saying your prayers, taking care of the poor. Uh, in other words, things we must do. 
just like the rich young ruler. And if you think, oh, that's just people outside the church looking in, I, I think this is something Christians on the inside misunderstand a lot, too. I was with a, a church leader early on in this process, and, you know, when you're starting up a church, you just want to meet folks, learn from them, uh, see if they might support it, and all that sort of stuff. So I was meeting with this guy, and uh, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the big churches, not in the media area, but, but close, and uh, a church of thousands of people. And we, after our conversation, he had his laptop open. He said, hey, you want to see a project I've been working on? I said, oh, yeah, of course. Well, let me, what's up? He said, well, we just recently asked our, our congregation uh, this question. What does it mean to be a Christian? And so hundreds and hundreds of uh, responses have been coming into the survey. He said, you'd like to see the list that's been kind of comp I've compiled here. He said, I, I got about 20 answers. And I was like, yeah, cool. So I went over, I looked at the screen, and I saw, what does it mean to be a Christian? Be a good person. Going to church. Saying your prayers. Taking care of the poor. I just kept reading, kept reading, kept reading. You know, by the time I was getting towards the end of the list, I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, these are good answers in, 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 a, in, in a certain respect, but it's missing it entirely. What must I do to receive eternal life? It is not what we can do. Um, do you think Christianity, do you think what Jesus uh, is, calls followers to become is ultimately about being a better person? About doing good things? If you think so, I mean, yeah, I mean those are good quality things. They are absolutely not the point. Uh, have you thought that? Have people sitting next to you in the workplace, they probably think that. Um, uh, it's another way of saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's what I love about, oh, oh real, real quickly, I mean, just, just before I, you know, I think, I think what you may be thinking here, and if, if, if to my Christian friends here, you might be thinking, oh, David, I see where you're headed with this. I don't think that. I'm not so sure. I don't, I haven't made it into what I can do. Uh, I would stop and say, are you, are you so sure? Because I think I struggle with this, and I'm, that's not to say, you know, I, I think we all struggle with this, and that comes out in things like when things go south, things go hard. Uh, what, what is our response to God? God, how is this happening? Well, how could you let this happen? What's that subtext for? I don't deserve this. This is not, I'm living for you. Uh, and yet, uh, so we can easily make it this. Uh, Jesus looked at this guy, and he loved him, um, which is so cool. He didn't come back and he say, bro, you're an idiot. Like, go listen to my podcast for another amount, and then come back and talk. He didn't do that. He looked at him and loved him, and then he came back with this profoundly strong invitation, like a master surgeon making an incision right to the center of this guy's heart. He didn't try to get in an argument with him. He just gives him a little invitation and sees what the guys will do with it. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. What a powerful turn of events. This guy came to Jesus with confidence. He came with a little bit of swag. Very first verse, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Yes, he got on his knees, but you can hear in that question a little bit of confidence, a little bit of swag. And then Jesus mentions the commandments. Uh, the commandments. He says, you got to do these things. Oh, I've been doing those since I was a little kid. And then here, after Jesus raises an issue, he lowers his head and he walks away because he had great wealth. What is happening here? What is Jesus doing? With one invitation, 
he is revealing to this guy his true motive, his true heart. And, uh, that this guy, and, and that is that this guy thought that God was first in his life, um, but really what he was serving was his possessions. To use the cliche, he was possessed by his possessions. Uh, and I think that's the point Jesus is making here is we all, we all serve something. Um, you know, let's take, you know, uh, those who think, okay, you know, God's first in my life. Um, an example of this that came to my mind is one that I, I've struggled with uh, at times, uh, early on especially. But from college, uh, even till this, this last week, having conversations like this, um, with some of my, my best buddies, you know, we'll be in conversation, and at one point, they'll say things like, hey, God's first in my life, or say something to that effect. At another point, they'll say something like, you know, uh, uh, women are first in my life. Relationships are first in my life. I mean, it's never said in those terms, but you, you understand what I'm saying. And, and the question will be asked, well, which is it? God or, or, or women? Or God or having that wife, that one? Like, which is it? Well, God first. God first, of course. Well, then how is it that when, you know, there's times where you're saying, God, how come I don't have that one? Where, where, where is she? Um, I think when we read uh, this story, it's very easy to look at this rich young ruler and say, dude, choose Jesus. Like, even if you're not a Christian and you're reading the story, Mark sets it up that way, does he not? He's like, dude, just put the possessions, just get, follow Jesus. Okay, just choose that. But the point is, Jesus is making is we all serve something. We all, and here's another way of putting it, we all worship something. Jesus lists off a series of commandments here. He says, you know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. He's listing off the Ten Commandments, with one exception, by the way. And that, real quickly, exception is he says, do not defraud. What's interesting about that one is it doesn't show up in the, the great Ten Commandments, but shows up plenty of other places in the law. That one often has to do with taking advantage of the poor. It's interesting that he included that one there. Anyways, that's what I thought. He mentions the commandments, but he jumps immediately to about halfway through the commandments and says, don't do these things, don't do these things. He goes to the half of the commandments that are about our relationship with others. He skips over the first few commandments that are about our relationship with God. I think like a master teacher, he's trying to tug out some tension for this guy. But here's the point. What, what are the first few commandments? The very first one is you shall not have no other gods before me. The second one is, you shall not make any idols. I think us reading that text today, you might think, hey, David, we don't have these little figurines that we're making anymore. Come on. Like, you know, these metal wooden things. We don't make idols. This is the 21st century. We don't, we don't do that. Wrong. I think we still serve the same gods and goddesses behind those idols as ever. For instance, the goddess of love. I mean, I just used an example of that. Uh, the god of uh, the harvest. Here's an interesting one. We're no, we're no longer an agrarian society. This is Silicon Valley. But I think we serve our careers, our professions, the produce, uh, efficiency. That's an interesting one. I think we I think we serve efficiency here. I mean, I think a lot of us serve efficiency. Like efficiency is king. Now, if things aren't going efficiently, it sometimes will be frustrating. Cause just because it's frustrating. But sometimes we'll, we'll just be inordinately frustrated. It's like people get in the way, or heaven forbid, require some of your time, and it's like the fangs come out. We're frustrated. Or there's this internal struggle of how is this going to affect my career? What's going on there? We all serve something. Um, the goddess of wisdom, we want to be known for knowing this, the best at this. 
And it could be good things. It could be really good things. You know, being the best parent, the best, you know, whatever. Um, Jesus said to this rich young ruler, one thing you lack. What's one thing that may very well be your ultimate thing? I, I think that's the question uh, this uh, begs us to ask for ourselves. I think some of you, you know, you probably serve and worship what others think of you. You know, um, maybe in general terms, just the opinion of others, or maybe people specific in your life, authority figures, maybe your parents. But wait, doesn't Jesus say, honor your father and mother? Yes, but could we elevate what our parents think of us over that commandment, over who God is in our life? Um, you know, last week we talked about power and fame, true greatness. I mean, even the disciples were like, how do I become great? And, you know, Chasing after greatness, serving greatness is certainly not lacking in the Silicon Valley. I imagine we'd, we'd agree on that. Uh, of course, we don't pray to the God of fame, um, but it's our, it's our deep thoughts and our meditations. It's, it's what drives us. Or maybe you're like the rich young ruler and you serve wealth and possessions. Frankly, I think we're all in this one. Uh, there's a, a pastor that I really respect. I don't know if he's still around. A guy named Juan Carlos Ortiz. He wrote a book called Disciple. And if any of you are interested in, in reading a book, this is one I, 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 I highly recommend. It's had an impact on my life. Um, I think it might be out of print, so um, you can borrow it from me. But uh, he, he's a pastor in, in Argentina, and he um, was preaching to his congregation there of thousands of people. This is a little tiny church that grew to thousands of people in Argentina, poor Argentina, and, and part of uh, Buenos Aires. And he was preaching, God loves you. He gave everything up for you. And so we've got to respond to that love. We've got to give back to him. We've got to give and take care of the poor. I mean, he preached that kind of sermon. Some of you might hear, right? And he said something astonishing happened. That week, hundreds of people from his congregation, hundreds of people brought titles to their, uh, you know, their houses and deeds. Uh, cards, I got that switched up with titles and deeds. But you know what I'm saying. They brought these things to the, the church leaders and said, here, pastor, uh, church leaders, elders, do with this. We were cut to the heart from this message. You take this. This is God's, not ours. And he said, he was really freaked out on the one hand. He's like, man, I don't want to do something foolish here. I don't want to do something unethical. But on the other hand, he said he was profoundly moved by the offering these guys were given. He's saying, look, we want you to have this. We, we want God to have this. Uh, could that happen here in the Silicon Valley? You know, with a moving of the Spirit, I imagine it would look differently, um, but it's nonetheless a challenge, right? Um, what we learn about ourselves uh, ultimately is we can't achieve what matters most. We can't do it. Second thought is what do we learn from God? Well, of course, Jesus lays out here. He does for us what we can't achieve. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Um, I love this little phrase that is made it into our vernacular. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, it is so funny over the years, uh, either hearing sermons or in my research even this week, um, of the biblical, 
gymnastics, the scholarly gymnastics that people uh, go through to try to take a little bit of the punch out of this illustration of a camel fitting through an eye of a needle. That just, how does that make sense, Jesus? And, uh, you know, for instance, one, uh, there's a number of folks who say, you know what, this word needle uh, in the original language, it also could, could mean rope that's tied together. And so, you know, some are saying out there, you know, you tied rope together and yeah, it's hard, but you got to stretch it and the camel has to maneuver. Problem with that is, one, it's a really big stretch to say, you know, rope from needle. But number two, Jesus said, impossible. Is that word? Um, the other one, this is really, this is really funny, is um, there is a legendary gate that enters into Jerusalem that is known for being really small. And it actually exists. It's there today. And camels have to, they can get through, but they have to kneel. They have to get down on all fours. And we say, oh, they have to humble themselves. And then they can get through. Uh, the problem with that is there's no evidence that this gate existed before the ninth century. And then the other problem is you said impossible. He said, he said impossible. Um, and what's interesting here is he doesn't just say, did you, do you notice this? He says, um, uh, he doesn't just say, how hard is it for the, the rich to enter? Verse 24, he says, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Period. Actually, exclamation point. He's just, he's broadening it. He's saying, the rich, yes, there's a special emphasis there, you need to understand, but everybody, they're saying, who then can be saved? With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I love the verse, verse uh, 21, where it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Do you know this is the only place, at least in the book of Mark, uh, where it says Jesus looked at somebody and loved them? Even if you've grown up uh, excuse me, even if you've, you've never read the Bible before, chances are you know Jesus, you know, had a thing for loving people. When people come to him, he'd love them. Here's the one place it's stated. And yet it's stated at, in a story where this guy, at least by the end of the story, ultimately rejects Jesus. What's that all about? I think Jesus is showing us he loves us so much, he wants us to make our own conclusions. He wants to us to make our own decisions, live the life that we want to live. He's not going to force you to put your faith. He didn't say, come back, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's talk some more. He loved this guy. He just laid to bear, here, here's, here it is. And he said to him, come follow me. Um, I think what he's showing this man, indeed all, all of us, is whether you're a commoner or king, whether you're a prophet or you're a prince, we are all spiritually poor before the God who wants to give us riches in him. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. It hit me this week that this story parallels from verse 17 all the way down to verse 31, the gospel story. It's all here. Verse 17, the guy says, you're a good teacher. Jesus, wait a minute, I don't know you're a good teacher. Only God is good, Jesus said. Jesus never lets us in the scriptures line him up among other teachers. You know why? Other teachers go back to the, pro the premise that this guy asked his question. What must you do? Good teachers will say, here's what you do. Live this life. Be good. Whether it's the Ten Commandments, whether it's whatever system of thought or feeling, whatever religion or not, here's what you got to do. Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. It's not about just being a good teacher. I'm not just a good teacher. Only God is good. And then these commandments that he lists off, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. This guy comes back and he says, I haven't done this since my youth, which is just silly at the end of the day. I mean, the more I learn about myself, I learn that I can't not commit these things in a given hour, let alone a day, let alone since my childhood, to the extent that God really calls us to love others. 
And yet he's looking, this rich young ruler is looking into the eyes of the one who had kept it. Kept all of them perfectly since his youth. And then Jesus challenges this guy, verse 21, one thing you lack. You know, Jesus struggled with that. Jesus struggled with giving everything over to God the Father in submission. What was that? The night, be, the night he was betrayed, the night he was arrested before he went to the cross, you know what the one thing that made Jesus stagger? It was the thought of dying on the cross for the sins of the world. He's like, I don't want to do it. This one thing, I'm not so sure. May this cup pass from me, is how he said it. We're going to be taking of the cup today. May this cup pass from me. And he said, nevertheless, your will, not mine. Jesus' face fell, just like this rich young ruler, but the rich young ruler went away sad. Jesus, with his face fallen, didn't walk away. He walked towards the cross. Uh, That is the good news of Jesus. Why did he do all this? Verse 21, because he loves us. Verse 27, he did the impossible. God became man to live the life we should live but can't and to die the death that we all deserve. That we might become, verse 24, we haven't haven't even gotten to this part yet, his children. Jesus, in other words, the richest of them all, gave up heavenly riches to give us true riches in him. And what's more, he goes on, he didn't just give up heavenly riches in that sense. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive. He goes on, he gives that wonderful promise. Jesus left the riches of perfect community perfect family with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Dramaless community. Can you imagine? You know, just perfect, unconditional love. Jesus gave up all of that. Why? To come and be with us to bring us into his family. That we would become his brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, in a sense. Um, He became very last in order to make us first. God did the unthinkable. God did the impossible. That's impossible. That doesn't make sense. That's like a camel going through the eye. But that's what God has done for us, for you. And so you can come to him today. That is what it means to be a Christian, by the way. That is the central point. It's this, receiving what God has done for you through Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection. It's really that. Now, does he want you to stop serving other gods, stop living for other things because he's a controlling God, because he's he's a tyrant? No, it's it's quite the opposite. He he wants you to serve him because he loves you. And he knows those other things, possessions being one of them, can possess you. Um, All these other things, you know what they say to us? Serve me, you know, feed me, you know. They all say of us, they all demand of us, what can we do? But we can't. And he has done everything for us. Will you receive this? It's the same invitation today as it was 2,000 years ago when he said to this man, he says, follow me. You can do that today. And the promise, I already started to read this. He says, if you you follow me in this way, you will will not fail to receive 100 times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, in this age and the age to come. He says, if you do this, it's eternal life will be yours. How can I, how, what must I do to receive eternal life? You can't do anything. You just receive it, but it will be yours. Your relationship with me, the Father, will be restored. He said, not only that, but here and now you will receive blessings. Not an asterisk, a little side note, with persecutions. I love how God is so real about it. 
He's not saying, follow me, and it's smooth roads and blue skies. He's saying, no, there will be bumps, there will be storms. But if you follow me, the extent you follow me, you're going to experience blessings in this manner farther than you, hundredfold. Now, how does that make sense, David? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think um, this is why uh, Mark 4, which again, we said weeks, months ago, is such a great syllabus that Jesus laid out for us. He said, the kingdom of God is like a seed. You remember that? He talks about different soil of where it falls in. Remember the third soil? The seed falls in and it gets choked out uh, by, the, by the thorns and all that sort of thing. He says that's deceitfulness as well. So it can choke out. But the seed that falls on the good soil, it can produce up to 30, 60, even 100 times what it started with. I love that illustration because you know what a, a farmer does at the time of harvest? I don't care how long they've been doing it. They always look back over the harvest with a sense of awe and wonder, like, wow, that was worth it. And aren't the best things in life that way? Look, when you're plowing, when you're working hard, uh, you're asking questions like, why am I doing this? Like, this doesn't make sense. But the promise is when you get to the end of it, you can look back and say, wow, that was cool to be a part of. And I believe a lot of you here are experiencing that today. And who are our brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers? Sitting in this room. Sitting in this room because we've set out to love on folks starting a church. Um, and I get all warm and fuzzy when I say that. Um, uh, you know, and it's not a community that is all about high fives, you know, fist pounds, you know, that sort of thing. It is a community that Jesus says, verse 29, that follows him, and it's for the sake of the gospel. Helping people, our love for him, and helping others see his love for them. Um, that is a worthy endeavor. You know, a lot of us come here for job opportunities. We come here to change the world. But you know what Jesus says to that? Your vision is too small. You can have true riches in that. And forget about just changing the world. Let's together change eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these sisters and brothers, fathers and mothers. Thank you for our family that sits in here today. It has all been made possible because you died on the cross for our sins. Your body broken, your blood spent, literally, uh, we, so that we can now 